Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 30th of June with me, Ian Welsh. As part of our From the Forest Frontline content series, we've been working on for the past couple of years. A few weeks ago, I was lucky enough to spend a few days in Cambodia, visiting some Red Plus Forest projects and meeting the people that have benefited from them. While I was there, I met with Charles Bedford, Chief Impact Officer at Carbon Growth Partners. As an investor in the carbon markets, I talked with him about what he looks for in a good forest project. Innovation Forum was in New York last week for our Sustainable Apparel and Textiles USA conference, and we have some reflection on that from Innovation Forum's Toby Webb in conversation with Cotton Connect's Alison Ward and Ramona Handel Pajema from Vision Spring. First, though, it's time for a quick roundup of some sustainable business news. Tropical deforestation rates globally were up 10% in 2022, with 4.1 million hectares of forest lost, according to Global Forest Watch, the platform managed by the World Resources Institute. Hotspots include the Brazilian Amazon forest and the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is despite the pledges from 145 country leaders at the COP26 meetings in Glasgow in late 2021 to halt global deforestation this decade. The WRI says that rather than progressing towards this goal, the planet is more than 1 million hectares of annual deforestation behind being on track to achieve this. The situation in Brazil was particularly discouraging. The country was responsible for 1.8 million hectares of primary forest loss in 2022, 43% of the world's total. However, the re-election of more forest-friendly President Lula, replacing the populist Bolsonaro, is hoped to make a difference in the future. There is some better news in Indonesia and Malaysia. While the former was still home to the fourth highest tropical forest loss, there is a continued downward trend in average deforestation rates in the country. In the period 2020 to 2022, primary forest loss was down 64% compared with 2015 to 2017, meaning that Indonesia has reduced deforestation more than any other country. Rates in Malaysia are also lowering, and this is thanks in part to corporate deforestation commitments, Global Forest Watch says. The UK is falling rapidly behind in meeting its legally binding emissions goals according to the UK government's statutory advisory Climate Change Committee in its annual progress report. The country has seen some good progress, not least in decarbonising the electricity supply sector, which has contributed to a 46% reduction in the UK's total annual emissions since 1990. But to meet its Paris Accord goals, the UK is committed to a 68% reduction from 1990 levels in 2030. The Climate Change Committee says that to achieve this, annual reductions outside of the electricity supply sector will need to quadruple. The UK is nearing a general election, which will most likely be in the autumn of 2024, and it's widely expected there will be a change of government. But the committee warns that there is not the time to park the necessary progress in climate change that's required if the UK is to meet its commitments. There is a lack of joined-up government, according to the committee, which suggests that the UK's newly created Department for Energy Security and Net Zero is not working effectively with other government departments. We've talked about the pressures on future supply security for the cocoa sector in the past and covered some of the initiatives in West Africa to make supply more sustainable and to eliminate deforestation. Swiss consumer brand giant Nestle, alongside partners including Earthworm and the government of Côte d'Ivoire, has announced the next phase of a project to protect the Cavalier Forest, which is adjacent to cocoa production areas in the west of the country. The project has been operating since 2020 and has already reduced deforestation, driven the regeneration of 7,000 hectares and reforestation of 1,500 hectares. The project has promoted greater economic resilience for local communities. Nestle says that more than 1,400 people have benefited financially. The next three-year phase is designed to further strengthen communities and protect the forest, whilst also working to improve supply chain traceability and transparency for cocoa and rubber. There will be focus on smallholder farmer productivity and incomes, protection of the rights of children by, for example, providing easier access to school. A total of 4 million Swiss francs will be invested in the project over the coming three years. 
The International Sustainability Standards Boards, the INSSB, has published long-awaited new standards covering general sustainability matters and more specific climate disclosures. The new standards consolidate a number of existing standards, including those from the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the International Integrated Reporting Council, and CDP's Climate Disclosure Standards Board. ISSB says that it is trying to develop an accounting-based language for sustainability reporting. The Global Reporting Initiative has welcomed the new standards, emphasising the distinct yet complementary purpose that the ISSB and GRI standards play. There has been some recent speculation that the two organisations would merge, but differences in approach have been reported as among the reasons keeping them apart. As reported by EcoBusiness, ISSB is more focused on financial materiality, the impact of sustainability-related issues on a company's financial position. GRI's focus is more on impact materiality, a company's impact on society and the environment. The upcoming EU reporting standards are going to include both approaches in a move towards so-called double materiality. When I was recently in Cambodia, I was delighted to have a conversation with Charles Bedford, Chief Impact Officer at Carbon Growth Partners and a professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. We talked about forest carbon projects and what buyers of carbon credits should be looking for in a good project. Tell me, what does Carbon Growth Partners do? Sure, well, we basically go around the world and look for the highest integrity carbon projects and figure out how to finance them, get financing to stand these projects up and make them work for carbon capture. And we are investment managers in the sense of we've gone out and found investors who are really interested in making a bottom line return on their investment, but also contributing to the climate crisis. So essentially you're investing in long carbon. We're getting long carbon, exactly. So if you're an investor, you feel like carbon as an investment asset class, which is a very new asset class, is something you want to get into, that's what we do. So carbon prices, kind of been all over the place the last few years. How do you think that carbon prices will change in the coming years? I mean, the whole theory of carbon marks is to make sure that price of carbon gets embedded in the bottom line of all of the work and that uh, corporates do, all of the stuff that all of us do, all that purchases, all of the travel, everything, you know, manufacturing. And the notion is, is that if you drive carbon and take that carbon price out of the externality zone and put it into the embedded in the cost of doing business zone, that will drive lots of changes in the way we do business, right? So you'll start to take actions that will decarbonize your business if you know that carbon prices are going to be going up. Do you have any sense when carbon pricing will become more realistic? Today we have carbon pricing that runs the gamut. In the compliance market, it's in the 100 euro, 100 dollar a ton zone for Europe, and that's actually just up from 20 euros a ton only a few years ago. On the other end of the spectrum, in the voluntary market, at the lowest end of UN CDM era credits, you're finding credits for less than a dollar. It's the same ton of carbon that's being reduced in, a, in the European compliance context that is being reduced in an Indian wind project, for example. And so the price differential actually doesn't make a lot of sense. We expect to see a couple of things happen. All prices are going to be going up, including compliance markets. Compliance markets are designed to rise over time. Essentially, the idea in a compliance market is you get a cap and you're trading around under your cap and then the cap gets dropped every year. And so the price is going to go up. So we know carbon in the compliance market is going to go up. We expect also that the voluntary carbon market prices will go up as well because they are the same ton of carbon being sequestered. So what that looks like and why that might happen, the demand for voluntary carbon is skyrocketing. 5,000 companies have registered their pledges with the Science-Based Target Initiative, another multi-thousand with the Climate Disclosure Project, and they're basically saying we're going to be carbon neutral by a date certain. 
that means a lot of hard work to decarbonize and then to offset or compensate for the rest of their emissions. That demand curve is huge. That's one reason. The other reason is we think that regulators around the world, and we're seeing it already in places like Singapore, South Africa, Colombia, are going to let voluntary carbon projects into their compliance market. So you'll see a convergence of the two markets in addition. So you see overall price rise through regulatory adjustments in the compliance market. And then you'll also see price rise because of convergence and then price rise because of the increasing commitment by the corporate sector. Let's think about carbon projects now. What do you look for as an investor in carbon projects for reassurance as to terms of credibility? The great thing about the voluntary carbon market is that it's already got lots of belt and suspenders in place to make sure that uh, carbon projects are up to snuff. They go through an initial verification or initial uh, registration process and are deemed sufficient to even proceed. So right out of the gate, you've got the registry saying and the standards saying, this is something that we would approve if you go out and do it right. Even before they go out and do it right, they have to go get an auditor. So the auditor comes in and says, yep, they're complying with this methodology under the certification standard. And then they go out and do the work. And then they have to go back out again to get an external auditor, a VVB, verification or validation body, to ensure that they've actually done the work that they said they were going to do. And then go back to the certification standard, and the certification standard has another look at it. So this is really a process that's already got baked into it a number of safeguards. There are also other options that we use to ensure the projects we're buying and credits and financing are high quality. So we use all of the rating agencies, for example. Rating agencies are independent entities looking at projects from a variety of different perspectives. We use all of them because we think that it's good for us to know each, you know, all of what they have to say. They're all brand new because it's a brand new market, but they're getting really good at looking at projects. And finally, we go out and look at the projects on the ground. So we have staff in Pakistan, in Africa, in Latin America, Mexico, and Colombia. When we do larger investments, we make sure that somebody's out there looking to make sure that stuff's actually happening on the ground. But what we look for in the projects themselves to make sure that they are internally able to sustain themselves over time and drive the carbon reductions that they say they're going to do that. And what that mostly means to us is that the science has to be right, of course, but what really that means is that all of the people who live around and in the project, if it's a red project or reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation project, that they have to be vested in it. They have to be sharing in the benefits. They have to be the owners of the project, de facto or de jure owners of the actual project, in order for you to think about long-term success. Those are the sort of things that we go through. You mentioned REDIS now. You're a big investor in Red Plus projects. Why for you does Red Plus work? The forests of the world are a massive carbon sink that we desperately have to figure out a way to conserve them, right? There's just no other way that has worked so far to stop deforestation. Red offers that opportunity for the world. There has been plenty of promises made over the years for other methodologies zoning and declaration of parks that turn out to be just on paper alone. Red's the first real mechanism where you see a consistent results-based payments going from countries and companies in the global north to the global south to preserve those forests. So that is the critical factor. And this is a scientists estimate between 25 and 30 percent of the climate change solutions are about conserving the forests that we have. This is the only thing that's really worked in many, many places on the planet so far. Why then do you think that Red Plus has attracted such recent criticism? There's a great American humorist, Yogi Berra, who said, it's tough to make predictions, especially when they're about the future. 
what happens in every carbon project is the developer goes out and says, look, I got to make a set of predictions about what's going to happen in the future. And I have to then try to beat those predictions, whether it's Indian installed wind into an Indian grid, or if it's a voided deforestation project in Colombia. The thing about predictions is they're always wrong. It's a question of how wrong. That's why red and other carbon project types have also uh, run into this criticism is because they're always going to be a little bit wrong. And so the question is, how much wrong can we tolerate? And how much are we going to get picky about whether somebody was off by a little bit in terms of how many credits they received? What's driven most of this criticism is not the methodology, not the process of creating credits itself. What's driven most of the criticism, I think, is that a lot of people don't like the idea of an environmental market, don't even like the idea of corporates being able to say, hey, look, we contributed to this country's or this indigenous people's efforts to decarbonize. They don't like that because they feel like it's greenwashing. My perspective is I'm fine with it. I'm happy to have greenwashing. Greenwashing is great in my mind, <laughs> as long as the payments are happening and as long as the price of carbon is rising over time, because that's the critical issue. It's not about the claim, it's about the price. And it's about the impact on the ground, surely? And the impact on the ground, sure. I mean, there are those who would say that we should pay people to dig holes and fill them back up again and have that embedded into the price of carbon in a uh, shell or BP. I don't think that's right and it's not necessary, right? We already have this mechanism, 200 separate, very complicated, science peer-reviewed methodologies, ways to create a carbon credit. RED is one of them, actually it's actually five of them or six of them. It's one of the best ways we know to bring funding to the people who are in the forest and around the forest to help incentivize them to not cut it down. Do you think that it boils down to prejudice against a market-based solution? Absolutely. There's a powerful anti-corporate bias, especially amongst you know, my friends in the environmental community. They just can't get over the fact that the corporate sector is, should be doing things you know, voluntarily. They don't quite get it. So there's a powerful bias on that front. There's a notion, I think, that corporates should be regulated and that countries should be preserving their forests for free. That's kind of crazy, right? I mean, if you've been to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know that zoning the forest in the Democratic Republic of the Congo is probably not going to work, not even just this decade, but probably not this century, right? It's a long way to go, and there needs to be a lot of development to ensure that the people in the Democratic Republic of the Congo aren't so desperately poor that they have to go into the forest and cut down the trees. Let's talk a bit more about the characteristics then of a good project. What should people listen to this, people watching this, what should they be looking for when they're looking for a good carbon project? So great carbon projects come from the bottom up. Project developers are out there working with local people in places which are under severe threat from deforestation, for example. So here in Cambodia, we visited a couple of red projects, the Keosima project and the Southern Cardamoms project. It's shocking how close to the ground and engaged with the communities around these places the two proponents of the project are, WCS and Wildlife Alliance, the Wildlife Conservation Society and Wildlife Alliance. And they're working so closely with local communities, but they're also working at the national level to ensure that the government is excited and interested and engaged and doesn't over-issue leases across the top of these red projects. At the international level, to make sure that people know that human development aspect of a RED project is one of the core aspects that will make it successful. For us, looking at projects like in the RED sector, 
places where the government has its act together and really understands red and understands how to support it and agrees to abide by it and is part of the solution of law enforcement and human development and bringing the sort of services to indigenous people that haven't had them before. And then the engagement and ownership really, true ownership by the communities in a red project. Those are the two or three factors that we really care most about. So as you say, we've been in Cambodia this week seeing red projects on the ground. What have been your other impressions or inspirations from what you've seen? It's hard not to be just blown away by the nature and the forests themselves, you know, what the biodiversity in the forest, whether it's the flora, flowers and trees and bushes and the variety of, uh, that's in there, just this dense matrix of hundreds and hundreds of species or the fauna, you know, the, unbelievable. There's 2,500 gibbons of this type that live in Keosima. You know the full name. It's the southern yellow-cheeked crested gibbon. The southern yellow-cheeked crested gibbon, I know, it's a very long, complicated. There's only 2,500 left in the world. A few populations in Vietnam, maybe another very small population here in Cambodia, and then 2,200 of them live in the Keosima Red Project, right? We watch them sing to each other in their family groups, and they're living basically cheek to jowl with the Bunong indigenous people, as they have for millennia. And so making and enabling a situation where the Bunong can continue to make a living and progress and get educated in healthcare and also see the perpetuation of a very endangered species is an absolute once in a lifetime opportunity. You made a good point yesterday when we were talking. How have we allowed there to be only 2,500 of these gibbons left? Yeah. It blows you away. I mean, these are primates. These are on the same branch of the evolutionary tree that you and I are, right? And give them another five million years, they'll have microcomputers and cell phones. Their lifestyles are very similar to ours. Their duration, their family groups, the way they interact. They get up a little earlier than we do, go to bed a little earlier, but it's shocking that we have let this happen. And really, for very little gain, right? The economic gain from extirpation of gibbons from the planet is minuscule, a few billion bucks that's going to go into somebody's pocket in a sawmill in Cambodia or Vietnam. A couple of billion bucks, we're going to trade that for this incredible primate, the gibbon. It seems like an insanity to me. Let's think to the future then. What for you are the key steps you want to see in the next few years that will reduce deforestation and its associated climate impacts? We have to do, as Antonio Gutierrez said, everything everywhere all at once on the forest. So in our view, that means in places like the developed world, the governments do need to zone and to prevent deforestation. So in the north of you know, the Russian, Canadian, American kind of boreal forest, that sort of management of that forest has to get a lot smarter. The big factors for two reasons, one is because of the carbon storage and two is because of the lack of governance in the tropics, that's really going to be the big focus for us. And so we have to make the most progress there. And mostly what that means is figuring out how to financially incentivize governments, indigenous people, corporates, local communities in those places to keep the forests standing as opposed to letting them get cut down. And that's a purely economic problem, an absolutely just an economic equation for people in the DRC, in Cambodia, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Brazil. It's actually pretty simple, right? RED offers a terrific mechanism to do that. Very few others have made any dent in this problem. Arguably, the graph of when we started talking about the planet and the number of words spent on COPS since the 92 Earth Summit, the number of pleas for urgency, exactly tracks the rising rate of deforestation over the last 30 years as well. That's a very discouraging problem. 
I think RED offers one of the great solutions. There are others out there, but this is one that we have a chance to make happen now. And now is when is important. We don't get to kick the can for a year or two years or five years on RED. That means that the forests that we spent the week here in Cambodia will be gone. We will lose the gibbon, we will lose the forest, we will lose the carbon sequestration that it provides us. Well, we saw clear examples of how forest disappears very rapidly. We flew over it. We saw it from with our own eyes. Um, and you're right, I think the incentive structure here in Cambodia is a really interesting one. It involves the government, but not directly. But the government isn't involved in supporting rather than leading from the front. So it's a very interesting incentive structure here that perhaps can work. Charles Bedford, Carbon Growth Partners, thank you very much. My pleasure. When they were attending Innovation Forum's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles USA conference in New York City last week, Innovation Forum's Toby Webb had a conversation with Cotton Connect CEO Alison Ward and Ramona handel Jima, a lecturer at Columbia and New York Universities and a senior advisor at Vision Spring. We've both been here at the conference for the last two days. What are your reflections? What have you learned? Alison, let's start with you. I think we've talked a lot about data and we've talked about gathering data, whether it's for carbon, whether it's for reporting, whether it's for legislation. So it's really clear that this data crunch is really coming for us in terms of apparel and really having good data to back up what we're doing. And are we seeing more progress in getting better data? I think we can always get better data, but I think there's a, a balance between having an impact in the supply chain, making our supply chains more robust, improving them, and then really just being data hounds. So I think there's a real balance for us coming between improving our supply chains, improving farmers' lives, in particular in Cotton Connect, but let's not get data at the expense of that. Yeah, well you were saying you've got 200 odd data points from your farmers, and that's set to go up. So that must be a big area of focus for you in the next few years. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We were actually talking about reducing our data points, but it seems now with the EU legislation, we're going to have to maybe put more in. But then how can we really use that data to be effective and how can we share data more with farmers? When there was the floods in Pakistan last year, we knew from our data exactly which farmers were affected, where the, the water was rising. So we were able, within a you know, half a day, a day, to quite quickly realise where there was some emergency relief needed. So that's where data really comes in in a crisis as well. Well, thanks for bringing that to life. Ramona, what are your thoughts? You've been sat in the front row for two days listening. <laughs> what, what are your takeaways from the last two days? Maybe because I'm partially, an, I'm an academic as well as a consultant. So I see these as opportunities as universities. And I think in university settings, often sustainability professors are almost behind what the market is doing and what the players are doing. It's almost a real life course in what the challenges are, what people are finding out as solutions. And this particular conference was great because you had huge brands with multi-billion dollar revenues in the room and tiny ones that are just starting out. And seeing the dialogue between the two kind of guiding those starting out on their quote-unquote journey towards sustainability was exciting. You came to our Amsterdam event, so how would you characterize the difference? Well, I did come to both. I felt there was a little bit more energy in the room in Amsterdam. I think because people are more responsive in a heightened way to the regulations coming in in the EU, so they were really wanting to talk brass tacks. We're here 
there was even questions about will that SEC rule even apply? You know, is it dead on arrival? So there's a lot more confusion and words like murkiness here where Amsterdam was not murky. It was, we have to do A, B, and C, and we have to do it yesterday. So Ramona, tell us about Vision Spring. You're working, or you hope to work with Alison and her team at Cotton Connect. Very briefly, what does it do and how is it relevant for farmers and workers? Vision Springs is a social enterprise. It started 20 years ago by an optometrist here in New York City who was doing community screenings and realizing that the people he was screening, the vast majority of them, did not require an optometrist. They just needed reading glasses that you and I can get at a pharmacy. But one billion people in the world can't. So. What we are doing is going in to the places where people work, from tea plantations, cotton farms, hopefully, and where garment workers are located in factories, and their work is dependent on near vision to succeed. Their yields go up, their productivity goes up, their confidence goes up, and how I think it's relevant to where we are is there are so many big problems that I've heard about today. You know, the carbon neutral and it's going to take 10 years and the impact is going to be difficult to measure in terms of data. We have a 700-year-old technology with immediate impact. <laughs> it's night and day. A worker comes and we look at their eyes and we go, you need a pair of reading glasses. They go back to their station and they can magically see. Wow. So the impact is immediate and we use Salesforce to collect all of that data. So reporting for me is, a, is easy, it's all quantifiable, and we don't have to wait years and years to change people's lives. Great, so Alison, how would this be relevant to you? What can you, can you do with this 800, 700, 800-year-old technology in the cotton fields of India and Pakistan? I mean, at Cotton Connect, we really have a holistic view of, of our interactions at, with a farm level and in the gins, and I think that so often we talk to brands about the social elements of a farm, a community. It's much, much harder for a, a garment brand to fund that. But we've done quite a lot of work with women talking about perhaps difficult issues like breast cancer, about their health, about menstruation. And we've really seen some quite dramatic differences as women really understand more. And I think this is a really great add-on in terms of giving people access to really simple opportunities that can really change how they operate on a day-to-day case by case so you may basis. well be working together soon. Yeah, Sounds exciting. All from Innovation Forum, to well, me. We are here, we are here <laughs> to connect you. Bringing people together. <laughs> We're here to serve. Um, thank you both for coming. Thanks both for joining Thanks. us on the podcast. Right. See you soon. Thank you. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. If you haven't read it yet, do look out for the latest column from business and climate writer Mike Scott, this time addressing the potential for insect-based protein. We'll be back on Monday with our regular weekly briefing, but that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.